at this time to Joshua chapter 22. And if you need a Bible so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study, um, just lift up your hand, make some eye contact with uh, our usher there, and he will leave a Bible in your lap so that you can follow along in our Bible study time. Joshua chapter 22. And let's again just ask the Lord to pour out his spirit upon his word. Father, we thank you for the truth that you lay out before us week by week. And tonight as we look at this passage that illustrates and and educates us about such a practical and uh, useful principle, we ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you would say. We pray that you would humble our pride and that you would help us, Lord, to be at peace with all men and that we would be at peace amongst ourselves. And so we pray, Lord, that you would take this word and let your Holy Spirit speak it to our hearts in a real, practical, living, and impacting way. And we just thank you, Lord, for it and pray that you would bless your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a woman who was traveling on business, and in between flights, she made her way to an airport gift shop and purchased a package of Lorna Dune cookies and a newspaper. And she made her way to a small table nearby and began reading her paper. And after a moment, she heard a sound, and she looked down from her reading, and she saw a man sitting across the table from her who was helping himself to one of her cookies. (laughs) Was shocked and amazed and not wanting to make a scene, She grabbed one of the cookies as if to give a subtle gesture of disapproval. And then a moment later, the man took a second cookie. And then she also, with rising anger, took a second. And this continued until there was only one cookie left. And then the man had the nerve to take the last cookie, break it in half, give half to her, take half for himself, and then excuse himself and walk away. Well, the woman was furious, and she got up, and she made her way to her gate, and she she was fuming with rage over the disrespect that this man had to just take without asking. But she was still in a state of frustration when she was called to board the plane, and as she reached into her bag to grab her boarding pass, she pulled out her unopened, neatly wrapped package (laughs) of Lorna Dune cookies. Have you ever been so angry, even even furious with someone because of something that they did to you only to find out that your supposed assumption of what was really going on was absolutely wrong? (laughs) I know I have. Or maybe, maybe you have been the one that has done something or said something in absolute innocence or even to be a blessing, and it's been so totally misunderstood or misinterpreted that it caused an uncontrollable downward spiral of negative effects in your life because you were misunderstood or the error was imposed upon you. I know that I've done that too. I once said to a sister-in-law, well, I exchanged the word fat for pregnant in an attempt to be cute and friendly, and I learned that you don't do that, you know. (laughs) I learned the hard way that you don't do that, you know. 
But it's a story of the best of intentions being misconstrued and misunderstood to make an extremely unpleasant and ugly situation. And it's exactly what happens in our text tonight, and it gives to us an example and a lesson of what can quickly happen, even amongst God's people, and even in God's church, that can quickly destroy or uproot things that God is seeking to build or to plant. So we're in chapter 22. And the scene that's before us as we enter this chapter is that Israel is finally at perfect rest. There's no longer any battles going on. The land is at rest. The people of God are at rest. There's no more enemies standing before them. And what we discover in this setting and in this chapter is a very unfortunate yet realistic truth. And that is this, that when the people of God conquer all of their outward enemies, there remains yet one enemy left. And that is the people of God. Is that the church has a tendency when it's at rest and at ease and in victory to turn on itself to not know when to put the sword away. And so we find, as this chapter begins, we see the land and the people at rest. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he promised them, Now therefore return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of Jordan. Now you recall from our studies in Deuteronomy and even what we've brushed upon as we've gone through Joshua, that two and a half of the twelve tribes of Israel, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, there's half of a finger raised there, that they had asked Moses years previously that they might inherit land that was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Prior to Moses' death and their crossing into the land, they had conquered two great kings on that side of the river, Sihon and Og. You remember those names. And they took their lands. And those two and a half tribes realized that that land was prime land for their occupation. They realized it was a good inheritance for them to have. And so they asked Moses if they could have that land. And initially, Moses denied their request. He said, no, you are simply seeking to get out of fighting the battles that we're going to have to fight when we get on the other side of the river. But the men of those two and a half tribes promised Moses, they said, no, that's not our motivation. And to prove it, All of our men, our men of war, will go with you over the Jordan River, and not one of us will take one step back onto this side until all has been completed over there. And so Moses was satisfied by that, and he granted their request. He said, you can have this land if your men of war go over and fight the battles with the rest of the army. And so that's what happened. And now as we come to this chapter, the battles are over. Seven years have passed. The land has been divided. And now it's time for these people to be given their honorable discharge to go back over to the other side of the river 
and to, uh, you know, receive what it is that had been promised to them. And so now Joshua sends them back, but he sends them back with both a blessing and a warning. Notice in verse 5, he says, But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, to half the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, that is, on the east side of the river. But to the other half of it, Joshua gave a possession among their brethren, on this side of the Jordan, that is, the westward side. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. And he spoke to them, saying, Return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. So the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And so Joshua now sends these tribes back and he sends them with great blessing, but he attaches to that a stern warning. He says, but take careful heed that you observe all the law of Moses and that you take care to do all the things that are commanded of you there. If you have given your life to Christ, if you're a follower of God, as a person of God, there are a few things that are absolutes in your life. There are some things as a child of God that you can be rest assured are going to happen to you. You're, it's, it's money in the bank. God is going to do these things in your life. Number one is that he's going to change you. If you're a child of God, you're going to have a changed life. You can resist that for a while. You can slow down that process as you kick against what God's spirit is seeking to accomplish in your life. But ultimately, that's a losing battle because if you're his, he's going to change you and he's going to do it in his way, in his time, and, 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 and you know, that you just can't get away from it. The second thing is that you're going to have an appetite for spiritual things. If you're truly his, then you're going to take interest in the things that are his, the word of God, the people of God, the things of God, the kingdom of God, the future of God's people. You're going to have an appetite for those things because if you belong to him, then that's a natural byproduct. Number three, guaranteed, is that you're going to experience trials and persecution and temptations and battles and struggles. It's fact. It's going to happen to you because God is a father and he's seeking to grow you. He's seeking to develop you. And it's through those things that he accomplishes that task. And so you're going to go through tough things as a child of God. It's guaranteed. Now, along with that, you're going to grow. You're not going to stay the same in your Christian experience. You're going to grow with him. But then ultimately, and this is number five, and this is my favorite, why I'm excited to give you this list, because this is absolutely guaranteed, if you're a child of God, that this is going to happen in your life, is that he's going to bless you. 
He is going to bring you to a place that you would say, I'm in a land of milk and honey. He's going to bring you to a place in your life where you will say, like David did, that my feet have landed in a good place. Pleasant lines have fallen out to me. My inheritance is good. And you'll come to a point in your life where you'll look around and you'll say, God, I cannot believe what you've done for me. I cannot believe where I've come from and how you've taken me through what you have and brought me to the place that I am. It's absolutely guaranteed, if you are a child of God, that his desire for your life is that he is going to bless you. However, with that blessing, there also comes an inherent danger. See, the children of Israel had spent the previous 40 years wandering in the wilderness, having no roof over their heads, eating the same food every day, living basically in poverty. They had spent the 400 years before that in slavery, nothing that you would call blessing. But now, after the seven years of taking the land, Joshua is sending them away with much riches. He says, you're increased with gold and with silver and with livestock and with houses and with cities. You're going into a whole new life, something that you never could have imagined would be true for you. But there's a warning that goes along with that. Because when the people of God come into the blessing of God, there's a whole new arena of new temptations that can come. Well, I never had the time that I have now before. And it's true that idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. And so, wow, I wasn't expecting temptations associated with free time to come into my life, but they do. I never had extra money, extra resources that I could do things with, make decisions and spread out a little bit and relax financially. I never had that before. Well, watch out. Because along with that freedom and with that blessing, there come temptations that you never had the opportunity or the resources to fall into previously that now you need to watch out for. And part of the reason why God keeps us in a place of struggle and trial is because he's seeking to train us so that we can handle the blessing that he's seeking to pour out in our lives. Because he's not going to give to us something that we're going to either squander or use to our ruin. And so he gives them this warning prior to their heading back into their rest. But they go, and they're blessed. And they take heed, at least for a time. And on their way, they go with joy in their hearts. They're glad that they're going to go home and be with their families, be with their wives, and enjoy the things that they've now been given by God and to walk in this newness of life. And so they go back to their land. And now comes the great misunderstanding. Look with me back in our text at verse 10. It says, And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a great impressive altar. Now, the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan, on the children of Israel's side. Now, if you have parents, or you are parents, and you have kids, and you have a back seat in your car, then you know the tone of voice that these kids are talking. They built an altar on our side. In verse 12, it says, And when the children of Israel heard of it, 
the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Now, this makes me laugh because this is me, right? And this is us. This is the church. We fall into this so easily. These people, the Reubenites, the Gadites, half the tribe of Manasseh, they left their families behind for seven years. They left their cities, their homes. They've been living in tents and fighting someone else's battle, really, for the past seven years. Battling side by side with these people. Laying battle lines, losing sleep, day after day, night after night, arm in arm with their brothers, the other ten tribes of Israel. And now they go back, and in their hearts, they're filled with joy. They're filled with gratitude. They're filled with a sense of unity and oneness with all the rest of the people. And they say, hey, Let's build an altar of camaraderie, an altar of memorial and of witness so that in time to come we can look at this monument and it's a reminder to future generations that we are of them. That even though we're on the other side of the river, that we're divided by this Jordan, yet we are one with them. We're not two, but we're one. And so they build this altar enthusiastically, making a statement of unity and brotherhood. And that Statement is misunderstood. It's misinterpreted by those that see it. And when they hear about it, that an altar has been built, they assume that they understand exactly what's going on. Well, they say, well, an altar is used for sacrifice. And the law of Moses strictly states that there's to be one place of sacrifice and that that place has been established as Shiloh, which is on our side in a specific city. And so these people are heading into paganism, idolatry already. Why would they build an altar if they didn't want to sacrifice on it? Also, it says that it's a great altar, that they're seeking to compete with us. They're trying to build something. They're saying, well, you built an altar in Shiloh. We're going to build an even bigger altar in the place where we choose. And they're seeking not only to divide and segregate from the rest of the tribes, but they're also seeking to one-up them in the quality or the ornamental beauty of their worship and their religion. And so they're dividing, they're being divisive, they're being idolatrous, sacrificing in a place that God didn't prescribe, and they're seeking to one-up us. They're trying to build a, a better church, a better sanctuary, a better altar than what we have. And so now... They take this supposed act of rebellion and then they spread it around. Do you see that word there? I think it's verse 11 where it says that they heard someone say. There's hearsay going on in this thing. And they begin to spread this story with embellishments. And this tribe that just fought with them side by side is about to be annihilated by an overzealous group of misunderstanding people of God because of this altar now that has been built. They say, go get your sword, we're going to kill them. They built an altar, they're going to die. And that's the practical solution, isn't it, church? I mean, isn't that what happens when someone offends us? We whip out our sword and now it's time? Listen, every conflict, whether it's real or supposed, has four basic ingredients, and these are what they are. Number one is that there's an action with unclear intentions. An action with unclear intentions. In this case, it's an altar. And we discover later that the intent behind it is not idolatry, division, or one-upmanship. 
But it's brotherhood, camaraderie, and unity. That's the intention. But it's an action, but the intentions were misunderstood. They were unclear. They were unknown. Number two, second ingredient, is assumption based upon appearance. Or you could say knowledge without facts. Not having full knowledge of what's really going on in the circumstances. They misunderstood the meaning behind these things. And there's something about human nature. I don't know if you're like this. I know that I am. Is that I would gamble my right leg to bet that my assumption of a situation is the correct interpretation. Is that once I get it in my mind that something is a certain way, and I understand it, and there's no other possible way that it could be any different than the way I see it, I would cut off my left leg before I would give you the opportunity to tell me otherwise. I don't know if you're like that, or maybe it's just something you need to pray for me for, you know. But that's human nature, isn't it? That we like knowledge without facts. We go with our assumptions, assumptions based on appearances. Number three is hearsay. And that is the spreading of the story, usually with embellishments. That once we get it in our mind that someone has done something offensive or wrong, we add and fill in the blanks, and we make the story a little bit more than what it is. We say, they're building an altar because they want to sacrifice to other gods. And they built a bigger altar because they want to compete with us and show us that they're better than we are. And they built their own because they don't want to be one with us. They want to be better than us. And see, see what I just did there? Is that I just spread rumors, but I added facts that aren't actually facts. It's embellishments. And so I've just spread hearsay. If you look there in verse 11 where it says that they heard someone say, you'll notice that the word someone is in italics which means that it's not there in the original Hebrew. It was added by the English translators to make the sentence clearer to read. So if you take it out, because it's not there, it says, someone heard say. They heard say. There was hearsay. And that's always what happens in a case where assumptions lead to divisions. And then number four ingredient in misunderstandings and conflicts is that a plan for retribution arises. And usually, it's one that's fitting with the worst-case scenario. Oh, yeah? They think they're going to turn from our God and divide from us and that they're better? Well, we'll show them. And so they decide to gather the whole congregation together to go to war against them. Now, here's the funny thing. Is that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are all on their side of the river living the dream. They're elated. They're enjoying their rest. And they have no idea that the other ten tribes at that moment were putting their armor on and sharpening their swords and filling their quivers to take them out. They had no idea that there was a battle plan being hatched against them because of these things. And so we see this conflict. Well, how is this conflict handled? How is it resolved? What do they do? But well, we notice here in verse 13 a few things that lead to the resolution of this conflict. Notice with me in verse 13. It says, then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead. And with him, ten rulers, one ruler from the, the chief house of every tribe of Israel, and each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. 
Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, and we'll pause right there for a minute. The first thing that these people do wisely in the resolution of this conflict that came from misunderstanding is that they brought the Lord into it right away. Phineas was the son of Eliezer, who was the high priest. Now, Phineas had a history. In fact, Phineas is part of the reason why the Levites were given the priesthood. Because Phineas, if you recall, was present way back in the book of Numbers. Do you remember the incident of Baal Por, where Balaam taught Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel by sending the Moabite women in to tempt the Israelite men? Well, after that whole incident took place, there was a man named Zimri, who was the head of the tribe of Simeon, and he rebelled against Moses, and he went the way of Balaam. He took a Midianite woman named Cosby, great name, right? And and he, in front of Moses, and in defiance of God and of, of the word of God, took her into his tent and, you know, sacrificed to her God and, and basically endangered the tribes of Israel from rebelling against the ways of God and going their own way and saying, hey, we can do whatever we want. And it was Phineas in those days when that happened, it was Phineas that said, this can't happen. And so he took a spear and he went into the tent and he pierced the rebellion, if you would. He took care of it and and put away the, the plague that came upon Israel because of it, bringing, you know, order back into the things of God. And so Phineas was a man of great zeal and zeal for the things of God being done right. But here he's brought by these 10 tribes and he sent in first to go in and find out exactly what's going on. Now, these people brought God into their conflict by sending Phineas to go and mediate one of the priests, the son of the high priest, to go in and mediate among them. How does a believer in New Testament times bring the Lord into a conflict? Here's the answer. is by bringing the word of God into it, setting it on the table, and rising it as the standard of what is right and what is wrong and how things are to be resolved. One of the things that I loved back when I was a carpenter is one of the things we would do is fire stopping. And fire stopping is, is when you're building, a, you know, like a commercial building, like say a building like the one that we're in. The fire codes require that the walls are built all the way up to the, to the deck of the roof. They can't just stop at the ceiling. They have to go straight through. And there has to be a certain fire rating to keep flames from passing through walls, you know, over a certain time. Maybe it's an hour or two hours or something like that. But when you're fire stopping a wall, basically you're putting drywall up in places where there's all kinds of pipes and electrical conduits and, you know, roof trusses and all kinds of iron things, holes and penetrations. And it's very tedious because sometimes one piece of drywall will have maybe seven or eight holes, sometimes a slot that's cut out of it. And I, and I always loved doing that. And here's why. Because it required two people. One person would be up on a ladder or a scaffolding up in the heights of the ceiling, and the other one would be on the ground cutting the piece of drywall. And so what would happen is that the man who was on the ladder would be taking measurements and shouting numbers down to the man on the ground. And the man on the ground would then be translating those measurements onto the drywall and 
marking the appropriate holes and cutouts, and, and there would be sometimes a, a lot of them, seven or eight holes. He would then cut them all out, you know, scribe the things, and then he would have to hand this piece of sheetrock up to the guy and pray to Jesus that it fit. <laughs> because if it didn't fit, it was coming right back down on your head, you know. But the reason that I liked that is because it was almost a form of fellowship. We were communicating and passing information that made a difference in how something was installed or applied. But the reason it worked and the reason it was joyful is because we were both measuring with the same standard. Do you understand? He wasn't measuring in centimeters and then me trying to mark it in inches. He was measuring in inches, and then I would mark in inches, and it would fit. And you'd say, yeah, all right, you know, we did something. Well, when people come to the word of God, and they say, this is our standard. This is what we measure by. This is what tells us what's right and wrong. Who's right and wrong? Which side of this conflict we're supposed to be on together? And when the word of God becomes the standard by which we measure those things, then conflict resolution is extremely easy because we're going by what God says and not by what we feel or what man thinks. Do you understand? And so the first thing, if you want to resolve a conflict, especially with a believer, is that the word of God has to be the standard. Now, I can only be responsible for the standard that I'm measuring by. And so that makes me accountable to make sure that I'm willing to measure my life, my actions, and my positions based upon what does God say in his word. It's a true standard. It's a living standard. It's a right standard. And so they bring the Lord into it, and they're on the right track. Here we go. Now, the second thing, the second stage in conflict mediation between God's people is that you bring everything into the light. There's no room for assumptions, no room for, I think this is why you did that. But now everybody's together and everybody's going to express verbally the depth of their intentions and why they did what they did. Everything is going to be brought into the light. Now, Phineas, representing the ten tribes, goes first. He brings the indictment, the assumption, the reason why they want to go to war against them. Notice in verse 16 what Phineas says. And there's a, there's a furrow in his brow, there's fire in his eyes, and thunder in his voice as he says it. Notice, it says, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. He's very gentle. Ready? What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, and that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? He's about as gentle as a fist. As he comes to them and brings this, he uses the strongest words that can be railed against them. Treachery, idolatry, rebellion against the Lord. And then, now, he gives his reason why he's so upset about this. He says, is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us? From which we are not cleansed till this day, although there was a plague in the congregation, giving reference to Balaam again and the Midianite women. He says, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. And it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Listen, you think that you're just turning away yourself and that it only affects you. 
But don't you realize that what you do on this side, we're one nation. And if you turn away from the Lord, you're going to bring wrath upon us too. And then in verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing and wrath fell on the whole congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Now, there's a principle here that's true. And that is that no one sins to themselves. Is that if you're living in a sinful state, if you're openly rebelling against the word and the commandment of God, then you are not only bringing damnation and tribulation upon yourself, but you're also bringing trouble and the potential for harm and hindrance to the whole congregation of the Lord. The body of Christ is a body. And in order for a body to function effectively, every part has to be operating in health. Your hand doesn't operate fully if you have a headache. We all know that. If one part is unhealthy or out of joint or out of place, it affects the whole body. And that's the indictment and the fear that Phineas and the ten tribes have in this thing. Now, praise God, they're wrong in their assumption of what's really going on, but they're right in their assessment of what happens. And let it be a warning for us concerning these things. So he gives his uh, discourse about these uh, things. He accuses them of treason and rebellion. He tells them why it matters. And then he even gives them an offer. He says, come back. If your land is going to cause you to sin, then come back. We'll find room for you on our side, which shows his sincerity and his seriousness in in this. Well, now it's time for Reuben, Gad, and and the half-tribe of Manasseh for them now to speak. And so they give their side of the issue in verse 21. It says, Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods... The Lord, God of gods, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings or to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. But, in fact, we have done it for fear. For reasons saying, in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us, you, children of Reuben and children of Gad. You have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar not for burnt offering nor sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Therefore, we said that it will be when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we may say, here is the replica of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, 
though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between you and us. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, or for sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. And it says, Now when Phineas the priest and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. Almost as if to say, oh. It's kind of like that woman who came home late from a long day at the office and she was tired. Coming home, she walked into her bedroom and as she walks into her bedroom, she sees four sets of feet, or four feet, two sets of feet in her bed. And incensed by it, she grabs a a baseball bat and she just begins beating the sheets with the baseball bat. And, And then she throws it and runs downstairs and as she passes through the kitchen, she sees her husband there sipping a cup of tea. And she says, what are you doing here? And he says, oh. I'm just having a cup of tea. Oh, by the way, your in-laws stopped in unexpectedly. I told them they could sleep in our room. I I hope you don't mind, you know. (laughs) That's the feeling (laughs) that these guys have now that they hear the answer from these two and a half tribes as to why they did it, they realize, oh my goodness, we went way too far with only half the facts. We didn't know what we were doing. And they realize that they've got egg on their face, that they're embarrassed. Before we move on from this and look at the the resolution of it and then apply it to our lives, there is something commendable in what Phineas and what these ten tribes are doing, even in bringing things to this level and going this far. Let's say for a minute that you were concocting a formula that was a foolproof cure for all cancer. That you had something that could, at any stage, at any time, no matter where or what the cancer was, it would cure it instantly without fail, on any blood type or any person. And you were working on this formula. But that formula was very tedious, it was very specific, very meticulous, and it took a long time for it to develop and for you to get it right. Now, if you were doing that, and a competitor caught word of it, and found out what you were doing, and broke into your laboratory with the intent, the true intent, to sabotage your cure, Not for the reason of copying it, but for the reason of keeping you from putting it forth so that you won't profit or gain recognition or credit for such a monumental discovery. Now, if they were caught in the act of seeking to destroy that cure, let me ask you, would their death be warranted? Would someone who is seeking to hinder the cure for the greatest disease that plagues and causes fear in the hearts of people Would the person seeking to sabotage that cure purely for their own self-interests be worthy of death? That's a good question, isn't it? See, what is God doing? God is bringing forth a nation through which he's going to give to the world the scriptures, his very word, the truth that leads to life. Not only the scriptures, but the Savior, 
the answer for the greatest plague that plagues all men, sin. And God's birthing a nation and putting it on the planet to be a witness of himself, to bring forth his word, and to bring forth his salvation through the cross of Christ. That is the solution for all of man's problems, the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ and the gospel message is the solution for every problem that man has. And if there was someone that was going to seek to pervert that plan or sabotage that nation that will bring forth that word and that savior, then the cost of letting that happen is extremely high. And so part of what these guys are doing is extremely commendable because they are seeking to preserve the thing that God is seeking to construct that will one day be the answer for all of men's problems, the salvation of the world. There is a problem that we face as a church today, and that is that in certain areas, people that call themselves Christians have erected a false altar. They've turned the focus and the attention away from the cross and the blood of Christ, and they've made Christianity into something else. They've traded the altar of the cross and the blood for the altar of attendance, allegiance, and entertainment. I call myself a Christian, I go to church, and I hope I find a good one where I like what I get when I go each week. And they've reduced what Christianity is to nothing more than something that I attend and give my allegiance to. But there's no cross and there's no blood. There's no repentance of sin. There's no forsaking of the old life. There's no clarion call that you must be born again and turn from your ways and call on the Lord for salvation. That there has to be a change in your life and that you're following Jesus and not simply the doctrines and the traditions of men. And many areas of the church have turned to the false altar of making it something it's not. And here's the proof. Is that in our day, we have bigger churches with bigger budgets, bigger facilities, and bigger programs, and yet we're making less of an impact on the culture and the society that's around us. And godlessness is growing at a faster rate than godliness. And the reason for it is because the cross and the blood has been blurred by an altar that's been erected, an impressive altar, upon which false sacrifices are being made. And it's our responsibility to take account for ourselves. At what altar am I worshiping? Is my faith grounded and set, rooted in the blood of Jesus Christ and his cross? Or is there some other reason why I call myself a follower of God? Is it because of what he'll do for me? or what I'm hoping to receive from him, or what I'm hoping that he'll do in my life, or is it because of who he is and what he's done? Is he an end in himself, or is he just a a means to some end that I'm desiring? And that makes a big difference. And we're not called to follow a God that we invent in our own mind that will do our will and our bidding. But we're called to follow a God who tells us who he is and how he is to be served. And he's given to us his son. And the blood of his son is the atoning sacrifice that forgives our sin and causes our name to be written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is why Jesus died. Not so that we could have a bigger house or any other thing. And so there's something commendable about what Phineas is. And may God give us Phineas's, maybe a little bit more gentle but perhaps with the same zeal and the same passion 
for the things of God. Well, how is this thing now uh, resolved? The outcome. Notice with me in verse 31. It says, Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the rulers, returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. So the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. There are three types of conflicts that arise, I'll say in the church, because we're in church and we're talking about Christians and being Christians. The first is the casual conflict. The casual conflict is the petty and unnecessary thing that comes up between believers that really, you know, it it makes absolutely no difference in how things turn out in eternity, but for some reason it becomes a much bigger issue in the heart and mind of those involved. We see that in in Philippians chapter 4 when Paul wrote to the church in Philippi and and he has to speak to two people by name. He he addresses Euodius and Syntyche, two women that apparently had gotten into some conflict. And that petty conflict that we don't even know what it was, was arising to a level where it was in danger of splitting that church to a point where Paul had to address it. He had to write to them and say, hey, look, you guys are really upstaging Christ right now. And you need to step down. And that's what happens with petty conflicts. When people in the church get agitated with someone else in the church because of something that makes absolutely no difference in the grand scheme of things. But what happens is, is that pride arises in the heart. And my cause or my stance or my feelings are more important than the gospel and the kingdom and the church And so I'm going to take this thing as far as I am, I have to, until I'm justified or I feel like I've been vindicated. And what you're doing is you're putting yourself before God and before the people of God. Because you're willing to see a church split. You'll say, you know what, I'll get my friends and you get your friends. And we'll go over here and you'll go over there and we'll hash this thing out. And if we can't, then we'll just go away. What you've done is you've just laid a terrible witness for the world. Jesus said, that you will know, the world will know, that you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another. And when a church is willing to divide, especially over petty, stupid things, what color is the carpet going to be? Why didn't anyone eat my pie? Why did she say my pie was no good? Or why did he get to to serve and I didn't? You know, and and it's amazing, the things that can split a church. That's the casual conflict. Number two is the close conflict. That happens between married couples. It happens between close friends. It happens between relatives when it's something there where it goes deeper than just the petty thing. And the stakes are much higher because now it's not a church, which is important, but it can be a marriage or a family. It can be other things that are at stake, a conflict that can cause division and war that can wreck a person's life. And then number three, the third conflict, is the complicated conflict. And that is that both sides are right. 
There are conflicts where both sides are right. When we stand upon the standard of scripture, I can prove my case beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so can you. And yet because of the complication of the issue, we can't resolve it that way. Or there's a lot of gray areas. Or it's unclear exactly what's right or what's wrong or what's best or what's worse. And and here's what happens is that you come to a place where both sides of the conflict are unwilling to bend. And what do you do when you have a complicated conflict? If I knew, I wouldn't be here. (laughs) I would be the ruler of the world because I would solve the world's problems because the world is full of complicated problems. And the fact of the matter is that sometimes we find ourselves in the midst of conflicts with people or with churches or with believers that are complicated. And how do we handle those things? What do we do? The answer is also given to us in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes these timeless and treasured words concerning this very thing. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you, Look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He says, put away selfish ambition. Put away your self-interests. Put away what matters to you. Set it down. Stop living for yourself and all that comes to you out of a situation and making sure that you have the upper hand or the edge or the say or the call. Then he says, esteem others better than yourselves. That's humility, lowliness. You say, well, how do you do that? Here's how. The answer is in verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he was God, and he didn't feel like he was stealing anything by being labeled as God. Now, if you're God, and it's okay for you to be called God because you are God, then what seat does that put you in? God's seat, right? And what do people say when they get into an argument with someone and they don't like what they say? They say, who are you? God, right? And the implication is that if you were God, then you could say whatever you wanted, and I would have to submit to it because you're God. Well, Jesus was God, That's what Paul's saying, that Jesus was God. But here's what God was willing to do when he was in an argument with man. Did you know that God was in an argument with man? That the whole reason this world has fallen is because God is in an argument with man. Man is lost in rebellion and sin. And God is seated in holiness and righteousness. Now, one of those two parties is wrong, and one of those two parties is right. Which one is right? Well, God. Well, you would say, no, I'm right. You, you need to get saved. When we sing the song, you'll come forward. You know, be, because, because you're in a bad place. You can't beat God, see? But listen, here's why you should get saved. Because here's what God was willing to do, and this is what Paul is telling us here. 
is that God said, you know what? Someone needs to bend in this argument. If there's going to be reconciliation, if there's going to be communion, if there's going to be unity and fellowship between me and the people that I made that I love, then somebody has got to bend. And God said, I'm going to do it. And he said, okay, I was wrong. Do you realize that that's the statement that the cross makes? The statement that God was making was, okay, I was wrong. I'll take, I'll take it. I'll take the punishment. I'll take the fall on this one. It's okay. But let's get right. That's what the cross was all about. God said, I was wrong. Paul's saying, that's the mind that's to be in you, Christian. If you belong to him, it says he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given the name which is above every name. The answer is humble yourself. Stop looking out for your own things and take the Christ seat, which is the lowly seat, to say, I'm not going to put myself and my thing before God, his people, my family, my workplace, even that person I hate, perhaps, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to lay my life down. Proverbs 13, verse 5 says, Contention cometh only by pride, but with the well-advised there is wisdom. So as we close, the message of Joshua chapter 22 is this. We are called as God's people to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that through that, we enable ourselves to be filled with God's Spirit and then to become an expression of Christ to the world. They'll know you're our disciples, my disciples, by your love, one for another. And here's how we do that. We do that by keeping ourselves in submission to God, that I choose to stand upon God's word, that my life is governed according to what he says. Number two, by keeping yourself in a humble frame of mind, that what's important to God is more important than what's important to me. And the number three is to think the best of others. Don't fall into stupid assumptions and thinking the worst about people because of what your mind contrives about how bad things actually could be. Think the best. Look at those people and think, is that person really that bad? Don't answer that. (laughs) Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God, the instruction that you give to us, so practical, so clear. And so Christ-filled, as we consider, Lord, that you're all over this, that your blood and your altar, your cross, the picture of reconciliation and unity. Lord, I pray that that would be our standard, our guide. That would be our altar that we bow to. And that we'd find ourselves filled with supernatural divine love for one another. That, Lord, by looking to your cross, we could think about the person that we hate the most and that that hatred could be refilled or replaced 
with perfect love, perfect acceptance. That right now we could think of those people that perhaps we think are burning us or that have stepped on our toes or that have offended us in some way and that we might find through your grace the power to forgive. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit tonight and that you'd fill us with a new appreciation of who you are and of what you've done. And we thank you, Father, for your grace, for your goodness, and what you do for us. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Thank mm-hmm. you.